Amen. First Samuel chapter eight. It says, now it came to pass when Samuel was old and when the Bible says you're old, you really are old. Remember, he started off in ministry at about the age of six, seven, eight, nine, ten. For 20 years, he had a singular message. There was a transformation that took place in the nation of Israel. And then for another 20 to 25 years, he judges the people of Israel. So from chapter seven to chapter eight, some 20, perhaps even 30 years have gone by. So Samuel is old and it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, look, you are old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they haven't rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants." He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard 
all the words of the people. And he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. The eighth chapter of Samuel records one of the most momentous and important times in the whole history of Israel. It's the time when the judges will move into the time of the kings. It's a transition period. You'll remember during the time of the judges, every person did what was right in their own eyes. And in chapter 7, you'll remember that there was a mighty revival that broke out. For those of you who were with us last week, you'll remember that the nation repented of their sins. They turned to God. Remember, Samuel gave a message over and over and over and over and over again. Sort of like what he testified, how a person came into his life and told him about the Lord over and over and over and over and over again. Until one day he listened. Just like you, maybe. People told you about God. You went to Sunday school and church and people told you about the Lord over and over and over again. But one day you listened and one day you responded. And they turned from their sin and they embraced the Lord and they abandoned their idols. And you'll remember that they built places of remembrance to the Lord in chapter 7. They began to depend on the Lord in, in verses 7 and 12 of chapter 7. And, and sometimes we, we need to remember those times when God has acted faithfully towards us. There's little places of remembrance that we build inside of our own hearts. Where we cried out to God and God listened and responded. He showed up when we cried out to him. And now some 25 years have gone by. And the whole climate has changed once again. And Samuel attempts to pass the leadership, the mantle of leadership to his children. And with every generation, there comes this fresh challenge that we all face without abandoning the old convictions. How do we impart to a brand new generation the things that we have learned, the grace of God, the mercy of God, that there's redemption in Jesus? How do we pass on to a new generation all of the things that we have learned? One of the great disadvantages of hereditary leadership is that children don't always follow in their father's footsteps. And the Bible uses a phrase over and over again to describe the fact that children don't always follow in their parents' footsteps. It says his sons did not walk in his ways. I remember when I first joined the Bureau and I was reading up on uh, the history of, of the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover was really reluctant to allow FBI agents into the Bureau when their fathers were convicted felons. And I thought, thank God this is now and not then. Because if the law enforcement agencies made the decision based on what my father had done, I would never be allowed to do anything. You know, I'm not saying he was in the mob or anything like that. But remember, on his income tax returns under occupation, he wrote legitimate businessman. I go, Dad, that's a red flag. That's going to get an audit. 
And he goes, but it's true. I'm 100% legit. I go, Dad, when you have to say that over and over again, people question you. J. Edgar Hoover thought that genetics played an important role in the moral and spiritual development of offspring. But we know that godly character and integrity aren't passed through the gene pool, thank God. And thank, you should thank God for your children. And the problem isn't limited to governments and it isn't limited to business and it isn't limited to ministries. Now, it makes perfect sense that godly parents would want to pass to their children a moral and a spiritual value that's consistent with their own. But some parents are more interested in giving their children a good education than to allow a mechanism for their children to become followers of Jesus Christ and lovers of Jesus Christ. Your first responsibility isn't to save for their education. It's to pray for their heart and their soul and their circumstance and minister to them. You might think that it's the church's responsibility. I bring them to church. They go to, to, to CKC. They're in the Sunday school. But guess what? The church isn't the primary imparter of value. You are. And you know, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is they will become almost certainly what you intend them to become. Remember what the Bible says? Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart. Is this a, a bulletproof Example that if you do everything right each and every time that your children will do what's right? No. But the truth is, if you love them, if you pray for them, if you use important moments to teach them about Jesus, it'll pay off. Every generation faces a similar seduction. Will we serve the Lord? Will we honor the Lord? Will we honor the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we believe the Bible? Will our children become swallowed in a culture that rejects God and rejects the word of God and rejects the Bible's assessment of our sin and reject the problem or the solution of our sin as savior? Each and every generation has to revisit the issue. Will I honor and serve and obey the Lord? And that's the big question. How will our children answer the question? How will I face the problems that confront this generation? Have our enemies gotten bolder and stronger? Do we live in a generation where the God of the Bible can no longer be trusted to meet our deepest needs, to satisfy the circumstances of our life? And so it begins with a rationalization for a king. Look what it says in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old... That he made his sons judges over Israel. Now you'll remember, judges occupied a position of great influence and power. And with that power comes tests and temptations. And with tests and temptations come the temptation to compromise and sometimes sell favors. Now here's what you must know and remember. Did Samuel grow up in the ministry? Yes. Did he serve in the temple? Yes. Did he face the same tests and the same temptations? The answer is yes. But you know what Samuel did? He honored the Lord day in and day out. 
He served the Lord day in and day out. He judged the nation day in and day out. He had all of the same tests. He had all of the same temptations. He had all of the same pressures. But he resisted them. Your parents had all of the same tests and all of the same pains and all of the same temptations. Your parents and your grandparents had all of the same tests and pains and temptations. And your children will also. But there will be two kinds of people, those who give in and give up. And those who wake up every morning and say, today, today, I'm going to honor God. And today I'm going to serve God. Today, I'm going to honor God. Today, I'm going to serve God. And look what it says in verse two. The name of his firstborn was Joel or Joel and the name of his second Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Now you have to understand Ramah, where Samuel was, was just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And Beersheba is all the way down on the southern tip of the occupation air territory where, where Israel has established, if you will, this confederation of tribes. Each tribe is independent and and has a responsibility to obey and honor God. But they are judges there. And Samuel names his children Joel, which means the Lord is God. And Abijah, which means my father is the Lord. He gives to them all of the things that they need. An understanding of the word of God and the will of God. I suspect that Samuel like any father, because he was out and about doing the work of the ministry. Maybe he didn't stay at home as much as he should have. But he was following the Lord. Did Samuel raise them right? We're not told. We're not told that he raised them wrong. But look what it says in verse 3. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took Bribes and they perverted justice. I'm going to suggest to you that Samuel gave them a godly example. But they started living a life of hypocrisy and duplicity and dishonesty. And pretty soon they turned from the Lord. His sons became greedy for money. That's the very definition of what it means to accept a bribe. The sons accepted bribes and they turned away from the Lord. This means that they were willing to take money. Think carefully. They're willing to take money from the guilty in order to oppress and persecute the innocent. And guess what? Greed will do exactly that. It will corrupt your sense of justice. Now, a very simple definition of the word justice is to render what is due in an appropriate fashion. You give to the person exactly what they deserve. That's the very definition of justice. The innocent need a fair trial. They need a fair shake. And over and over again, the testimony and the word of God was to not pervert justice. And so Israel was being ruled by judges 
who had hung over their judge's chambers a sign that said for sale. Now, by the way, when you are living with a government that has a corrupt leadership and a corrupt court, does that strengthen or weaken your faith in the law? It weakens it. It weakens it. If you can't get justice from your leaders and if you can't get justice from the courts, where can you get it? And so here it is. Deja vu. Sounds like Eli's sons all over again. And so the people of Israel demand new leadership. And they give the reasons. Number one, Samuel, you're old. Number two, corrupt leadership, corrupt judicial system. But there's going to they're going to give a third reason. It was Kenneth Chapin who said where people do not receive justice, whether caused by prejudice or payoff, it is hard to respect the law. And there's nothing more frustrating than a corrupt judicial system that punishes the innocent and promotes the wicked. The Old Testament is ripe with warnings from prophets who warned people who would pervert justice. You, it says that prophet Amos said, you turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. It was a way of saying justice is no longer justice. It's poison. You know, I was reading a Barna research survey. It said, quote, only three out of ten born again parents include the salvation of their children in the list of critical parental emphasis. He stated on the company's website, quote, parents cannot force or ensure that their kids become followers of Christ. But for that emphasis is not to be on the radar screen of most Christian parents is a significant reason why most Americans never embrace Jesus as their savior. He writes the fact that most Christian parents overlook this critical responsibility is one of the biggest challenges of the Christian church. Your children will become exactly like you let them. And so it says in verse four, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, look, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, again, what were the reasons the tribal leaders laid out for Samuel? Number one, you're old. The idea being, hey, look, we're going to have a crisis of leadership. There's going to come a time when you're not with us. And look, your sons don't walk in the ways of the Lord. And they said, and we desire a king. And look carefully to judge us like all the nations. And that's a key concept in this particular passage. Note what they say. They don't demand a king after God's own heart. They want a king. Read it for yourself. Like all the nations. What kind of a king does God desire for them? What kind of a king does the Lord want ruling in their hearts? One who loves justice and mercy. Remember, he's shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly, to love mercy, to walk in humility. By the way, 
it's okay for you to ask this question. Why didn't the people ask for a king after God's own heart? What do you think the answer is? Why wouldn't they want a king after God's own heart? Because their own hearts were wicked. Their own hearts were defiled. Their own hearts were divided. Their own hearts had strayed from the Lord. And that's the key. You'll you'll remember that what kind of a nation was Israel supposed to be? Their strength was to come from the Lord. The law of the Lord was to be the wisdom for the people. The separate tribes had a responsibility to worship and obey the Lord. The people of Israel were to be a covenant people. And it was the Lord, the sovereign king, the self-existent God, the one who revealed himself both to Abraham and Moses. This was supposed to be their king and their Lord. But the elders were concerned. And you know what they were concerned about? We're concerned about national security. We're concerned about the invasion of foreign powers. By the way, the tribal leaders wanted protection from their enemies. And here's what they believed. They believed that the solution to their problem in order to have protection from their enemies was a strong central government. So here's their solution. More government. Remember, we've already had this conversation. When the government shows up and says, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yeah, that's you break out and laugh. That's the right thing to do. But think about it. Were their enemies real? Yeah. The Philistines were still powerful. The Ammonites were still a threat. And we're going to find that out in 1 Samuel chapter 12. The Assyrians are building power to the north. The Egyptians are still powerful to the south. And the the children of Israel, they have no paid professional army. And in the event that they could raise an army, they didn't have anyone to lead the army. Because here was their very special relationship. The Lord was to be their king. The Lord was to be their protector. The Lord was to be their defender. Their Lord was to be their shield. Their Lord was to be their their hope in time of need. Just like you. Paul writes and he says, you have everything that you need in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians, he writes and he says, you are complete in Jesus And the very fact that the people asked for a king was evidence that spiritual decay and apostasy had set in. And so I'm always suspicious when a person comes to me and they say, I'm looking for a church and I'm looking for a pastor. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm glad to be the pastor and I, I thank God for the church. But I'm hoping and praying that it isn't a pastor that you're looking for and it isn't a church that you're looking for, but it's a savior. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a person who you will come to know and love and trust, because guess what? The church, as wonderful as it is, and the pastor, I'm hoping. Even though he's not as wonderful as he should be. The whole point is that you have a savior. 
who loves you and who can forgive you and take care of you. And that's the whole point. And so they have to make a decision. And it's the same decision that each and every one of us have to make every single day when we get up every single morning. Who's going to rule in your life? Who's going to be in command and who is going to be in control? From where are you going to receive authority? And if the authority comes from something other than the Lord God and the word of God, then yours is a misplaced authority. And look what it says in verse six. But the thing displeased Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now, it's interesting to me. The text says that the, 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 the thing displeased Samuel. Question. Was Samuel displeased because he felt slighted? Was he displeased because after a lifetime of faithful service, he felt like he was being kicked to the curb? Maybe. Did Samuel feel displeased because his sons were accused of very serious crimes? Let me ask you something. When your children are accused of bad behavior, how does that make you feel? Threatened? Hurt? Isolated? Intimidated? Was Samuel displeased because they wanted a king like the nation's? I'm going to suggest to you that the text emphasizes the final reason. It isn't simply because of those other things, but it's that final thing. Give us a king to judge us. And I think it's interesting that Samuel, listen carefully, doesn't argue with the people. I know I would. I would want to defend the Lord. How can you just turn your back on God? How can you abandon his leadership? How can you forget all of the promises that were made? How he showed up, remember, in the earlier chapter. Remember when you repented? Remember when you turned to the Lord? Remember when you abandoned the idols? Remember when the Philistines attacked? How could you forget so soon? He doesn't argue with the people and he doesn't defend his children. Note the very first thing that he does. Read it for yourself. He prays. To the Lord. I wish I could say that every time something like this happens to me, that's exactly what I do. When someone suggests that something other than the Lord should guide their life. Or when someone accuses my children. Of something. I wish I could say that the very first thing that I do is pray that I don't always Samuel does. He prays. And I think for good reason. Because when there is rebellion and disobedience, when there is serious accusation, doesn't it make sense that the very first thing that you should do is say, I'm going to pray about this. Now, I'm a father. And I have gifted children. And I'm aware that I'm sensitive when people criticize them. We are able to see with surprising clarity the faults of other people's children. And we're blind to our own 
children's faults. You know, the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. So I don't feel so bad about seeing my children through a father's eyes. But Samuel prays. And look what the Lord says in verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. When Samuel prays, the Lord gives Samuel a surprising answer. And I think that the answer was intended to comfort Samuel. Don't you? Hey, look, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. They haven't kicked you to the curb. You may think that you've been kicked to the curb because you're too old to minister. You're too old to serve. You may think that after years of a lifetime of service, of faithful service to the Lord, that they rejected you. But it's not true. Now, when I was reading this, it occurred to me that there's a surprising amount of room for pastoral or ministerial abuse for this verse. And you know what it might be? As a pastor and as a minister, I might read this verse and I might come to the conclusion that what my word and my will are is the same as, as God's word and God's will. Part of what we have to understand here is the challenge that God has spoken to Samuel. And sometimes when I think God is speaking to me, it's not the Lord at all. It's my word and my will. So does this Verse, give me carte blanche as the minister to say, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with God. Well, I think it would be the height of arrogance for a minister to quote this verse to all who don't agree with his or her leadership. I don't think that that's what the text is saying. When we confuse our personal ambition with God's purposes, we are not always speaking for God. And the same is true of every leader. Whether you're a parent in a home or a boss on the job or an officer in the service or a teacher in the school, there are times when the rejection of the leadership is a rejection of God's plan. But we've got to be careful. We, we should be very, very careful. And we should remind ourselves that we can faithfully communicate God's plan and God's purpose and God's will when we represent the character of God and the plan of God and the will of God according to the word of God. And then look what it says in verse 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods so that they're doing to you also. You know what the Lord is saying? The Lord is reminding Samuel, look, Israel has a long history of rejecting the Lord. Israel has a long history of turning from the Lord. And the Lord reminds Samuel, Samuel, this isn't the first time that something like this has happened. Over and over and over again. You'll remember that when God used Moses to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt, it didn't take long for them to demand other gods. You'll remember in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, when, when Moses went to receive the law, he goes up to the top of the mountain. Joshua's at the bottom of the mountain. And the children of Israel are gathered together and they come to Aaron and they say, Make us gods. 
Exodus 32.1. What? Look, we'll be honest with you, Aaron. It's very difficult to trust the invisible man. We would like something physical, tangible, something that we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears and touch with our hands. We want the kind of protection and guidance that comes from something that's visible and real to us. And when they experienced the humiliating defeat at Kadesh Barnea, the people said, let us make a captain and let us go back to Egypt. That's what it says in Numbers chapter 14. It's like, okay, I've been a a Christian or I've been a part of the covenant community for a very long time. I've wandered out in this wilderness. I've experienced all kinds of pain and hardship. And now I'm ready to abandon the Bible and abandon Christianity and go back to the world where I came from. Really? Really? You're ready to throw in the towel? And again, one of the clear signs of apostasy in the church is when the church says, hey, we want to do what God wants, but we want to do it our own way. What? Yeah, the Jewish leaders had no faith. This is really what they're saying. They have no faith. They have no confidence that God could really defeat their enemies. Just like us. We sometimes think God doesn't have the ability to save my marriage. God doesn't have the ability to right the wrongs of my past. God doesn't have the ability to overcome the addictions. God doesn't have the ability to overcome the situation that I happen to be in, whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional. That these are real, profound enemies. Now, I'll be honest with you. I am not surprised that people in the world think that God cannot help them. That makes perfect sense to me. A person apart from God, a person apart from Christ, a person who's grown up in a vacuum and they have zero idea about the God or they completely misunderstand the God of the Bible. It makes perfect sense that the bottle might be the answer, that the pills might be the answer, that unadulterated greed could be the answer. They do something to, to try and fix the problem, to make more money than you could possibly spend in a lifetime. And if I'm rich beyond anyone's wildest dreams, then there's no problem, there's no issue that could ever threaten me. John MacArthur rightly points out in his brand new book, Right Thinking in a World Gone Wrong, he writes, quote, Our response to moral questions is not determined by politics or economics or personal preference or popular opinion or human reasoning. It is instead grounded in what God has told us that is true about ourselves and our world. God's word offers sanity and clarity and hope. But the leaders who have come to Samuel, they simply don't believe that an invisible God 
can help them with their very real enemies. But the Lord had called Israel out of bondage and slavery, not to be servants of sin, but rather to be sons of God. And the Lord didn't save you and forgive you and redeem you and reconcile you to the Father and place His Holy Spirit inside of you so that you could live a life empty and void. The Lord is a loving God, a patient and a generous God, a kind Lord. The Lord isn't a tyrant who compels and destroys everything that stands in His way. The Lord is kind and the Lord is patient. And the Lord will be kind and patient even with these people. The children of Israel, they want to be like the nations. And if your children ever come to you and said, I just want to be like everybody else. Mom, Dad, I'm tired of being different. What do you mean different? What are you talking about different? You know, going to church, reading the Bible. I'm tired of being different. I'm tired of having this Jesus shirt or this Jesus freak shirt. It, it points me out. I stand out in the crowd. I look different. Question. Are Christians supposed to be different? Are they to act differently and think differently and speak differently? I went to a website. This is not even a Christian website. This is from... Freedom from Religion website. This is the enemy, okay? Dan Barker from Freedom from Religion Foundation quotes George Barna. Now, again, he doesn't believe anything that George Barna is saying. He, and I'm going to quote him directly. Quote, this comes up sometimes in debates, moral and practical. Are Christians better off than non-Christians? This coming from a non-Christian. Quote. I just read George Barna's book, The Second Coming of the Church, Word Publishing. Barna is a born-again Christian sociologist, founder and president of the Barna Research Group, which releases many meaningful survey results. Although 90% of Barna's book is a, just a sermon to Christian ministers on how the church can regain its lost status, he does report some frank statistics showing how the church has failed. The numbers are based on his own studies and other national studies. On page six, he gives a table. Examples of the similarity of behavior between Christians and non-Christians. The 25 items listed include, have you been divorced among those who are married? Born-again Christians, 27%. Non-Christians, 23%. Give money to the homeless or a poor person in the past year. Born-again Christian, 24%. Non-Christians, 34%. Took drugs or medication prescribed for depression. Born-again Christians, 7%. Non-Christians, 8%. Watched an X-rated movie in the past three months. Born-again Christians, 9%. Non-Christians, 16%. Read all or part of a book just for fun. Born-again Christians, 50%. Non-Christians, 57%. Donated money to a non-profit organization. Born-again Christians, 47%. Non-Christians, 48%. Bought a lottery ticket in the past week. Born-again Christians, 23%. Because if I hit it big, Lord, I'll pay you back. Non-Christians, 27%. Attended a community meeting on a local issue. 
And born again Christians, 37 percent, non-Christians, 42 percent, and so on and so on and so on. He basically goes on and he points out that in the behaviors that were noted, there was no statistical significant difference between those who identified themselves as born again Christians and those who did not identify themselves as born again Christians. The point. The children of Israel. They want to be like the nations. Because they. Want to. Be just like everyone else. And sometimes we want to be just like everyone else. We want to drive a new car. We want to live in a new home. We want to be able to have all the the DVDs and the movies and the electronic gadgets. In other words, we live in a cultural circumstance where we acquire the same things of the culture. We talk like the culture. We interact with the culture. And, And again, I'm not suggesting even for a moment that we can just simply detach ourselves and abandon the fact that we live in this particular culture. But somehow we must be different if that difference means depending on the Lord, loving the Lord, knowing the Lord, walking with the Lord. In verse nine, it says, now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Here's what the Lord says. Give them. Exactly what they want. But before you do. Spell out the consequences. By the way, this is one of the most terrifying places anyone could ever be in their whole life. When the Lord says you whined and complained You've whined and complained, and I'm going to give you exactly what you want. And what follows is a laundry list of known behaviors of neighboring kings. And the list includes none of the advantages and all of the disadvantages of a central government. The Lord wants the people to know exactly what they're asking for. He also wants them to know exactly what it will cost. Okay, here we go. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. He began in verse 11. He said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to his horsemen. And some will run before the chariots. I'm going to conscript your children. I'm going to take them from you. Verse 12. He will appoint captains over the thousands and captains over fifties. He will set some to plow the ground and reap the harvest and some to take weapons of war and equipment for the chariots. The very first thing that he's going to do is he's going to take everything necessary in order to have a standing military. That means we're going to have to have an army. That means we're going to have to equip the army. That means we're going to have to feed the army. In verse 13, he's going to take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and barbers. Not only are you going to have an army, but you're going to have to have support staff in order to support the army. Verse 13, he's going to verse 14. He's going to take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. Eminent domain is going to take place. We're confiscating what you have 
earned and we're not going to compensate you. We're going to take it for national security purposes. Because it's in the best interest of the nation. And in verse 15, he's going to take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, and he's going to give it to his officers and servants and make no mistake about it. Even though he takes a 10 percent of everything that you've got, you still have a mandatory obligation to give 10 percent to the Lord. So I want you to think just for a moment, every dollar that you make, just take 20 cents and it's 80 cents right off the top. And that's just to start with. And then he says. So here's the deal. They're going to be drafted into the military. Your sons and your daughters are going to be taken for support staff. You are going to be drained. You're going to cry out to God. You're going to beg God. You're going to say, God, what was I thinking voting for that particular person? I know that he said he was going to double the tax burden. He was going to throw us into debt and he was going to do this and that and this and that. But guess what? That's what you wanted. When you depend on the government, doesn't it make sense that it becomes your God? If you depend on the government for everything to obey God's commands, God has warned them. Now, basically, here's what he's saying. You're going to cry out to God. You're going to beg God to relieve you of the burden. But God has warned you it's not going to happen. And by the way, it becomes a loving act, not an unloving act. It is a loving act. It is not an unloving act to tell people about the pain and the long term implications of the decisions that they're about to embark on. You know, I know that the Bible says that I shouldn't be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. I know that you have warned me. I know that the pastor has warned me. I know that the Bible has warned me. My mom and dad have warned me, but I love him. Okay, then this is what you have to look forward to. You'll never be able to pray with him because he doesn't believe like you believe. He may go through the motions. It's a religious motion. He may go through the motions, but pretty soon he's going to get sick and tired of going through the the motions. You're going to want to raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But this person has no fear and admonition of the Lord. He's going to become emotionally detached. And pretty soon he's going to get sick of you. And then he's going to leave you and he's going to divorce you. Well, what's the good news? The good news is you should have listened to the Bible to begin with. But the moment that you make the choice, the moment that you make the decision, the moment that you make the choice to rebel and disobey God, then someone who loves you should be willing to spell out the consequences. And look what it says in verse 19. But before we do that, I just need to point one more thing out. Nothing has changed. You take what you want from life and then you pay for it. You take what you want from life and then you pay for it. What do you want? What do you really, really want? When the Lord God was king, the nation had everything that it needed. The Lord's demands weren't unreasonable. Here's what the Lord said. Please obey me. I'll bless you. I'll protect you. I'll lead you. I'll guide you. 
I will give you a joy-filled life. I'll give you everything that you need, and I'll even give you more. But remember the key to Samuel's speech. And he will take. And he will take. And he will take. And he will... Isn't that the absolute truth when you decide to make someone Lord of your life other than the Lord God? If you decide to make Satan the Lord of your life, he will take from you and take from you and take from you. And if you live in a deluded circumstance thinking, I'm not serving Satan, I'm just serving myself. then guess what your flesh will do? Your flesh will take from you and take from you and take from you. And I'm warning you. That if you embark on a course of action that jettisons the lordship of Jesus from your life, your flesh will take from you and Satan will take from you and the world will take from you. But look what it says in verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But we will have a king over us. Are you sure that's what you want? I've spelled out the consequences. It's what I want. Now, again, the fact that they want a king over them isn't the worst thing that's happened in this chapter. You know what's the worst thing? They don't want a king after God's own heart. By the way, is God preparing a king with God's own heart? God is preparing a king. And as God is going to be preparing a king, that king's name is David. God's preparing a king. And then he's preparing a new king and another king just for you. The son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord is going to use a different king. He's going to use Saul to discipline and chasten the people in preparation for David. Because David was always God's choice. And David's son was always God's choice for you. God prepared a king for your heart. A king who would come and live inside of you and love you and forgive you. But look at verse 20. That we also may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Do you hear the invisible? That we also may be like everybody else and that our king, a physical, tangible, accessible person, can judge us and go out before us. We want a human being to fight our battles. Verse 21, and Samuel heard all the words of the people and he read them in the hearing of the Lord. We want physical, tangible, touch, taste, smell, accessible. You know what was the last thing on their mind? The last thing on their mind was pleasing the Lord. 
here's here's what we we want to do. We want to please ourselves. And we have no desire whatsoever to please the Lord. You know what they wanted? They wanted a guarantee that their enemies would leave them alone. They wanted a real, live, tangible, visible, knowable king. Someone who would judge them, fight their battles. And they found it difficult to believe in a God revealed in a book, an invisible God with wonderful commandments. In spite of everything that God had done for them, in spite of all of the evidence revealed to them, in spite of the call of Abraham, in spite of the sojourn in Egypt, in spite of the miraculous escape from, the, from slavery, in spite of the provision in the wilderness, in spite of the occupation of the land, They were willing to turn their backs on the almighty God and choose a frail, weak, temporal human being to be in control. Lord, I just want a husband. Lord, I just want a wife. Lord, I just want someone who's physically, tangibly, emotionally available. I want someone other than you. In Jesus' name, amen. Does that prayer make any kind of sense to you? Now, you know, it's really interesting. Does Samuel favor this idea? No. But you know what's interesting to me? He will come to love... And then be deeply disappointed in King Saul. He will rejoice. Samuel will rejoice when Samuel, when when Saul does what's right. And then he'll be deeply grieved by his disobedience. And a little bit later on in the book of Samuel, Saul will be asked to do something to obey God. And he'll do it in an incomplete fashion. And this old, old Senior Saint Samuel will take a sword and he will hack Agag to pieces. There may have been snow on the roof, but there was still a fire in his furnace. But that's for later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that there are times in our lives and there are times in our children's lives and there are times in our friends' lives when for reasons that we don't quite comprehend, they want someone other than you to be the Lord of their life. They want someone other than you to rule and reign in their life. They want someone other than you to order, examine, and otherwise determine what's right or what's wrong. And Lord, I pray that you would give us all wisdom to be willing to remember the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God and to remind them of the consequences and to spell them out in exacting detail and warn them. And then, Lord, I pray that we would be willing to let them accept the consequences of the very bad choice that they've made. But Lord, I also pray that like you, gracious and kind, loving, merciful, that Lord, you'll make a provision of repentance, a provision of hope, a 
provision of forgiveness, a provision of restoration. And that, Lord, you would once again unite them to your love and your your mercy, your sovereign lordship in their life. Lord, make that connection. In Jesus' name. Amen.